0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of the AgriFood podcast dedicated to agri trade. So in the past few weeks we've spoken with a number of experts, policymakers, different stakeholders and even trade negotiators to bring you the nitty-gritty of trading agricultural commodities and foodstuffs.
1: And in this podcast we will try to clear some issues such as why agri trade is so important in the context of the general EU trade policy, what makes EU foodstuff and European single market so different for trade partners, as well as the social and political consequences that come from closer trade relations. So you've probably heard of this CETA, TTIP or the Mercosur deal uh, because the debate over these free trade agreements or FTAs has grown over the past years. Uh, There are, of course, different type of trade blocks, uh, depending on how much the trade partners are integrated. So starting from the simplest form, namely simple partnership and cooperation agreements, uh, which provide a general framework for bilateral economic relations, uh, but leaving customs tariffs as they are. And then you go up to the association agreements and, and free trade agreements, which you remove or reduce custom tariffs in bilateral trade. And then you have customs unions, uh, which are free trade areas plus a common external tariff. So it means that custom duties in bilateral trade are eliminated. And there's also a joint customs tariffs for foreign importers. And at the top, you finally have single markets. So for instance, the European Union uh, is a single market. And the and, uh, single market is one of the deepest forms of trade integration, uh, and it uh, involves the free movement of goods, uh, services, capital and labor.
0: So a quick overview of the current situation. So as of November this year, there are 36 main preferential trade agreements negotiated by the Commission and approved in the different EU countries. So the latest to enter into force was the one with Vietnam this summer. But the EU also has an FTA with South Korea, which was actually the role model for other agreements for, for quite a while. And other remarkable deals uh, include the ones with Singapore, which has, been, uh, has entered into force since 2019, and also the famous CETA deal with Canada, um, which is provisionally applied since 2017. So there are five new agreements currently being negotiated, one with Australia, one with China, which is actually uh, more of an uh, investment agreement. Uh, we have Indonesia, New Zealand, and also the Philippines. On top of that, there are also several that are kind of impending, meaning that the negotiations are over. A political deal has been struck, but it requires ratification by member states, which means these deals are kind of in limbo. So the most famous case of this is the agreement with the economic and political bloc Mercosur, which is made up of Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, uh, Venezuela, although they've currently suspended their membership, and also Bolivia. But there are also pending deals uh, with different West African countries and East African countries and also the Caribbean.
1: But let's dive now into our core topic today, so the trade in agriculture and food products. So during the first seven months of 2020, uh, EU27 agri-food trade, so exports plus imports, reached a value of $178.2 billion, which is 2% more than uh, in the same period the previous year. So we asked John Clark who's the Director for International Affairs in the European Commission's directorate General for Agriculture, why agri trade is so important in the framework of
2: the EU trade policy? I would answer that question as follows. Historically, the EU has been a bit defensive in agriculture, but over the last um, 10 years or so, that's changed a lot, uh, with successive reforms of the CAP, making farmers more uh, market-oriented, Global population growth, which uh, increases demand for food, and growing uh, consumer preference around the world for EU quality and safety. All those reasons together have made us more uh, competitive in agri food, to the point that now the EU is the world's biggest uh, agricultural exporter and importer and has a big trade surplus. We exported last year 180 billion euros uh, of food, imported 120 billion euros. And we're competitive not only in high-value processed products, but also um, commodities. So we have a big interest in um, opening markets, in finding outlets for our uh, exports. And we are more and more uh, trade-oriented, I would say, in agriculture. Um, Ten years ago, we were um, exporting about uh, 7% of what we produced. Now that's doubled. And one in seven jobs in the EU depends on uh, exports uh, from from the farm. At the last count, we had... 44 trade agreements covering nearly 80 countries and a third of our trade is covered by FTAs and they're starting to deliver. Um, in Canada, for example, our, our exports uh, to them went up 6% last year. Uh, Japan, FTA after one year, a 16% export surge. And we're now negotiating with Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Chile, UK, of course, which is our biggest market now, where we hope for some white smoke in a few days and more, more countries to come.
1: So um, the more farmers are competitive, the more are, uh, let's say, not afraid to place their products uh, in the global markets. We've also asked uh, John Clark, what are the trickiest issues that the EU usually deal with during trade negotiations on agriculture and foodstuff?
2: From my many years' experience on this, there, there are four, uh, four challenges. The first is how we manage what we call sensitive products, like beef, poultry sugar, rice. These are sensitive in Europe in the sense that they are we are a bit less competitive than our partners, for whom these are priority sectors, and we surround them with very high uh, tariffs. And because they are sensitive, uh, we cannot usually liberalise these products completely, as that, that would damage our farmers too much. So we try to find a balance. We try to manage this by offering what we call tariff rate quotas, fixed quantities at, at a lower tariff, as in the case of Mercosur or Canada, for example. So in short, we we balance the need to offer meaningful concessions with with the need to protect our domestic production for the future. And it's all about managing the expectations of our partners, which we've done successfully to date, I think. The second challenge is geographical indications. Their protection uh, in third countries is a priority, uh, they are um, at the forefront of our export success, but they get uh, usurped and copied and counterfeited all around the world, and some uh, partners are reluctant to uh, protect them again though we 've been very successful in getting our iconic names protected because in the end, they are recognized by consumers in Japan in China in USA everywhere as European quality products and uh, and that uh, has a massive market value so Uh, GI protection and enforcement in our FTAs is a priority and we've been rather successful in in securing that. A bit more difficult is uh, non-tariff barriers to our exports, notably sanitary and phytosanitary barriers such as linked to BSC or African swine fever. And of course many countries today uh, still do not recognise that the EU is a single regulatory space. Uh, for the purpose of food safety. And so what they do, uh, they approve um, uh, individual member states to export or they don't approve any of them. Uh, so we, in, in our FTAs, we are fighting hard to get the EU as a, as a whole uh, recognised for the purpose of export against other countries' uh, safety rules. It's a long-term um, issue, but we have to try and fix this in the FTAs because o- otherwise... the the market access benefits that we get uh, given with one hand get taken away by the other hand uh, because we can't actually market our our products due to these uh, indefensible um, uh, rules. The last challenge, and it's a growing one, uh, is the so-called level playing field. Our farmers um, are uncomfortable with the fact that we uh, sometimes import food, which has been produced with lower environmental standards or animal welfare or, or labor standards. And therefore, um, the, our farmers feel that there is unfair competition from these uh, imports. Um, We've we tried to deal with this um, through having uh, cooperation chapters on sustainable development in our FTAs, uh, cooperation on animal welfare, on environmental protection, on climate, in order to, to raise standards on the side of the, uh, of the partner country. That's not seen, however, as quite enough by our farmers, and and in the in the Farm to Fork strategy uh, and the Green Deal, um, you'll have seen that uh, uh, there is a, an intention to uh, start to uh, require that imports um, meet uh, fully uh, our own standards when it comes to uh, animal welfare, uh, pesticide use, um, use of antibiotics, and, and and so on. So we'll see how that plays out. We will have to do that in a WTO compatible way.
0: So now we have a good kind of general overview of what agri-food trade entails, um, but now let's hone in on agri-food trade uh, with the EU specifically. So what makes trading with the EU so particular?
1: We've already mentioned geographical indications, which are an uh, indication of the uniqueness of EU agri-food products, but there's a number of other considerations which makes trading with the EU quite particular.
0: So we spoke with MEP Irene Tolleret to hear uh, what she had to say about the
3: uniqueness of the EU food system. It is so important to protect EU food in agri-food trade deals. The European agri-food sector is unique since it has to comply with the highest standards in the world in terms of environment, food safety and animal welfare. We have been building for years a solid agri-food system in which the geographical indications are the most successful experience. Although they account for only 7% of the agri-food production, their weight is growing and export of quality products to third countries are increasing. Geographical indications result from the immemorial European heritage, and they are the fruit of the adaptation of man to his environment. They are a true expression of our European identity in internal and external markets. Those products already provide economic and social benefits to rural populations thanks to the impossibility of delocalisation of jobs and also their significant value added. The protection of geographical indication is already a priority for the European Union in the negotiations of trade agreements with third countries, and we should welcome it. However, there are some important partners, particularly the USA, which do not recognize the European quality system. I consider it necessary to strengthen the dialogue with the administration in that respect. The new Green Deal is a crucial challenge for the European agriculture. European producers are asked to meet important societal ambitions to contribute to the carbon neutrality objective. And I hope that the reform of the common agricultural policy will offer the tools to reach such an important target. Nevertheless, European farmers alone cannot save the planet. The European Union should promote the protection of the environment in third countries bilateral trade agreements should automatically integrate environmental commitments. The objective would be double. On one hand, it would avoid unfair competition towards European farmers, and on the other hand, it would also spread high environmental standards outside the European borders. The European Union should not conclude in the future any trade agreement with countries refusing the application of the Paris Agreement. Furthermore, to promote the protection of the environment over the world, the European Union should ban agri-food imports coming from deforested areas. This is a request which has been supported very recently by the European Parliament. So, to protect the environment in the planet, we should protect EU food in agri-food trade deals. So to go with
0: its unique agricultural system, the EU also has a pretty particular consumer base, which also needs a place in discussions around agri-food trade. So EU consumers have some of the highest purchasing powers in the world. Uh, In 2017, for example, Europeans had an average per capita purchasing power of uh, around 14,000 euros, um, which has also been shown to be steadily growing.
1: But as well as a strong purchasing power, there's also a growing awareness of environmental issues such as climate change and global plastic contaminations. Uh, the European Commission recently released its uh, 2019 edition of the Consumer Conditions Scoreboard, which found that an increasing proportion of EU consumers consider the environmental impact of their purchases. A clear majority of of retailers, 71%, think that environmental claims made for products or services in their sector are reliable.
0: They also found that the overall gap in consumer conditions is narrowing between the different regions of the EU, Um, as well as the fact that consumers are more aware of their environmental footprint. It also found that consumer rules enable trust in the marketplace. So speaking at a recent Euractive event on sustainable food chains, here's what Leia Offray, the uh, senior trade policy officer at EU consumers organisation Buick, had to say.
4: A few words to explain uh, that we have the privilege at Buick to represent 44 uh, national consumer organisations in 32 countries. And they are in contact uh, on a daily basis with millions of consumers. And one of the great things that we do together is to survey consumers to actually know what they want and what they expect. And it relates to your question, of course, because uh, the late survey that we, later survey that we've done with them, um, was about food sustainability, and it turns out that two thirds of consumers are now saying that they're ready to change their eating habits, to reduce the impact that they have on the environment. And for most of them, local supply chain uh, is a synonym of sustainability. They really associate the two concepts. And for the debate today, what's important uh, to keep in mind is that we need to make sure that uh, trade policy is actually an enabler for consumers on their sustainability journey and to help them in their demand to bring the farm closer uh, to the fork Um, and to reply to your question, uh, actually origin is one of the most important things for consumers uh, when they are buying food Uh, but uh, today it's still a bit difficult for them to know uh, where they are buying from and this will be part of the farm to fork strategy and it's really important. And what will also be key is to make sure that the farm to fork strategy and the trade policy are going hand in hand. So we really need to make sure that trade policy will help uh, consumer uh, there. And um, because we really need to make sure also that basically trade rules will be compliant with the sustainable development goals. One of these is sustainable consumption. And we also need to make sure that Imports coming in the EU we respect the basic rules that we have set up, labeling, food safety, uh, but also we should take into account other criteria like respecting uh, basic animal welfare standards, less input and in pesticides, uh, and also fight together with other countries against antimicrobial resistance. So here we would need to, to see the trade policy a bit uh, braver on this aspect and really help consumers make the healthy and sustainable choice. And this is something that we would like to see reflected in the upcoming trade policy
1: review. Something the EU prides itself on is the fact that it has some of the most stringent conditions for food safety, something that helps protect consumers and inspire their trust in the market. But this can also throw up some issues when it comes to trade and trading on the EU's terms. We spoke to Eduardo de la Peña of the EU food safety agency, EFSA, to hear more about how this affects the agri-food trade.
5: The European Union is well known for its high standards on food safety, but what is not so well known is the robust system that makes them possible. Take, for instance, the coordinated effort made against the introduction of new pests in the European Union that could damage our crops. The current European plant health law, adopted almost one year ago, provides comprehensive and clear rules for the prevention of entry and spread within the European territory of plant pests. As a consequence, more focus is being placed on the importation of high-risk commodities, the so-called high-risk plants, from countries outside the European Union. High-risk plants are defined as a group of plants, plant products and other objects whose introduction poses an unacceptable pest risk. The import of these plants into the European Union is currently prohibited. However, national plant protection organizations from third countries can request an exemption from this import prohibition by submitting a technical dossier to the European Commission. In these technical dossiers, the risk mitigation measures applied on the country of origin on the commodities to reduce the likelihood of infestation by plant pests are explained. EFSA makes a scientific risk assessment, case by case, and determines the likelihood of introduction of certain pests. Our scientific opinion supports then the European Commission on taking a final decision regarding a potential exception. This system, in which the responsibility for risk assessment and for risk management are kept separated, makes possible that European consumers are among the best protected in the world as regards risk in the food chain. Our work has also positive consequences beyond the European borders. For instance, the European plant health law is not only restrictive, but it can also help third countries to identify areas for improvement. By doing this, they can eventually facilitate trade with the European Union or with other partners.
0: And lastly, what would a special podcast on agri-food trade be without hearing from the women and men who are the lifeblood of our agricultural scene, our farmers themselves? So where do they stand on agri-food trade? What well, we spoke with Daniel Azevedo of EU Farmers Association, Copacajaca, to find out.
6: In, in terms of agri-food trade, uh, we are today uh, the, the world leaders in terms of agri-food exports. Uh, we are also uh, the, the first or the second um, importer of, of agri-commodities and, and rare commodities around the world. So our approach to trade is that we, we need to develop a level playing field across all operators in international trade. Um, and we must promote all aspects of sustainability and extend these benefits of trade to the farm level. Today, uh, many farmers, they still don't understand how, how the benefits are translated economically at the farm level. And we need to make sure that in the trade policy, um, that, we, that they will uh, understand this benefit, they will get this benefit. Um, Increasingly, uh, our our foodstuffs are now are, are being are very renowned for their sustainability. Uh, we have high levels uh, uh, high standards in terms of animal welfare, uh, food safety, um, environment, animal health, and this is recognised by by our trade partners. Um, so the EU framework is actually encouraging the agri-food sector to invest in added value products. Um, and this, uh, of course, we have some prospects in terms of certain uh, sectors in Europe. We have, um, for example, olive oil, we have dairy, uh, some cereals, some of the mid-sector that, that has prospects, uh, good prospects, and, and they are recognized internationally. They are selling wine is another uh, sector. So it is important that if we want to make this production potential a reality, it's, it's fundamental that we need to look for uh, new outlets outside the European Union's uh, single market, and develop also non-food outlets. So that's why we have been supportive of, for example, uh, U Canada, U Mexico, uh, U Japan, Korea, um, and very much of the multilateral aspect. The the multilateral uh, is fundamental for agri-food sector. If we find an agreement at multilateral level, it, it is the framework that would allow as to develop this level playing field across all the operators international trade. And it's also an area where we can promote the all aspects of sustainability. We are supportive of the trade agreements, as long as they are balanced within the agriculture chapter, um, as long as it contributes contributes to the overall valorization of the EU products, um, and also as long as there is properly enforcing of the trade provisions, including, for example, SPS, and the protection of geographical indications. Um, and so trade can, can actually provide balance for the EU market. It can balance out product categories and ensure sustainability. Um, but exports of agri-food products are not the objective per se. Uh, the objective is to create added value um, that will translate into benefits for farmers and agri-cooperatives. Uh, so um, we know that EU framework is increasingly pushing uh, production costs. And if this is not taken in international trade negotiations, uh, despite the EU leading role in those areas, uh, it will be very difficult for European farmers and cooperatives. So we need to be treated fairly. I think that, that will be the most important. If we face t- uh, tighter restrictions on cultivation or higher production standards due to the EU framework, talking about green deal, farm to fork, common agriculture policy, biodiversity strategy, then we expect to be treated fairly. If you conclude a trade agreement, uh, then the Commission must take into account that there is a difference between consumer standards and production standards. Uh, and from our perspective, for example, the EU Mercosur Agreement clearly fails to deliver on this aspect. Um, so we are not against trade. We have actually been supportive of the EU trade agenda. We have supported uh, many bilateral trade agreements, but they have to be balanced balance to agriculture, uh, to the agri-food sector. I think that is our main approach to, to trade.
1: With its recently unveiled flagship food policy, the Farm to Fork strategy, the European Commission is committed to make the European food system a global standard for sustainability. And as the biggest global food importer and exporter, the EU food and drink industry also affects the environmental and social footprint of global trade.
0: So we spoke about this contradiction between the aims of the farm to fork strategy and the EU's trade policy with Joël Pacheco, who is a senior fellow at the think tank Farm Europe, um, and who was also in the past a deputy director general in the commission's DG Agri.
7: It seems obvious to me that there is a contradiction between the commission's uh, aspiration in the farm to fork strategy to push for local and shorter supply chains and at the same time uh, the uh, EU push for a further opening of agricultural trade with third countries. But you can argue that uh, the uh, shorter local supply chains are more aspirational than effective. But I would go further. I would say that the farm-to-fork and biodiversity strategies will push for more imports, will push for longer supply chains. Why? Because uh, reducing chemical pesticides by 50%, uh, chemical fertilizers by 20%, increase the agricultural land, which is set aside, increase organic production, and so on and so forth, will result in a drastic reduction of production in Europe, and more imports. There are some external impact assessments that show that. And so the end result would be more imports and no guarantees that those imports will fulfill the basic aims of the farm-to-fork strategy
0: but according to john clark who is the uh, commission official that we heard from earlier in the podcast these two things are not mutually exclusive
2: the covid pandemic has shown the importance for food security of keeping borders open of keeping the single market uh, running uh, and uh, of open markets in general and the sector was very resilient during the crisis and i think you know our conclusion is that um, we need to uh, maintain open agri food trade We need to diversify uh, both our markets and our sources of supply. And uh, even though in the new uh, agricultural policy we'll be giving more focus on um, short supply chains and buying local, um, that that is complementary to um, our broader uh, international and and global uh, reach in agriculture. The two things are not at all mutually exclusive.
0: So we've touched upon many of the major considerations when it comes to agri-food trade but of course as with all trade deals they hold many ramifications and there are many considerations from every perspective including social and environmental so there's a few other elements that we wanted to kind of bring in here into the podcast that, that warrant attention.
1: And this environmental element in particular is a biggie, uh, with the upcoming talks on the Mercosur agreement, which after 20 years of negotiations has still yet to be ratified. This is really a sticking point in the ratification process, with many member states holding up on the process over environmental concerns. We spoke with Shefali Sharma, director of the European Office of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, based in Berlin, to hear more on this.
8: There are several concerns with regards to the EU Mercosur trade deal. Just this week, we learned that over 11,000 square kilometers of the Amazon were deforested between August last year and July of this year. That's the highest recorded in 12 years. Under the Bolsonaro administration, we've seen the deforestation rate continue to increase each year while land grabbing and human rights atrocities have been exacerbated under his rule. This trade deal increases quotas for key agricultural commodities such as beef, poultry, ethanol which is grown from sugar and increasingly from corn. The beef quota is set to double while there will be a six-fold increase of the ethanol quota. The deal would also reduce or eliminate up to 90% of current duties on chemicals, increasing exports of dangerous chemicals from the EU to Mercosur countries. Many of these are banned in the EU. This deal not only increases the incentives to produce more meat because of the expanding quotas, but also soy because it is the major protein crop fed to animals and mass produced in the region. Politically, it also gives a strong signal from the EU that we are okay with the rampant deforestation occurring in the region. We're talking about globally critical biomes for both climate change and biodiversity, such as the Amazon, the Cerrado, and the Gran Chaco, which is a 100 million hectare expanse of wilderness. A large part of it lies in Argentina, a major soy and soybean meal exporter. Uh, to the EU and some of it also lies in Paraguay and Brazil. It has immense biodiversity and is under threat from soy expansion. Renowned scientists contest that the Amazon will reach its tipping point if 20 to 25% of it is deforested. Well, last year they estimated that 17% of the entire Amazon basin and 20% of the Brazilian Amazon has been deforested. This does not leave us much wiggle room for the Amazon to transition from being an enormously critical carbon sink and regulator of water cycles in the region to a net carbon emitter. It will also create total destabilization of the water cycle in the entire Mercosur region, leading to droughts and other disruptions. So if the EU is serious about its climate goals and the spirit of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, then it should be changing its trade policy in accordance to those goals. This agreement is not in line with the climate goals. It also creates a double standard and jeopardizes EU's own farm to fork strategy. The farm to fork strategy aims to dramatically reduce pesticide use and completely ban any residue on food of pesticides not registered for use in the EU. Pesticide corporations and trade partners have been pressuring the EU to allow banned substances in imported crops, and the Mercosur FTA will only add to that pressure given the prevalence of banned pesticides in the Mercosur region. These pesticides will come back in through crop imports from the region.
0: Of course, proponents of such deals will argue that trade can support sustainable development of commodities, things like palm oil, um, and that this can be encouraged through labelling schemes. But Shafali was critical of this.
8: There's little in the WTO or the EU's free trade agreements that ensures environmental sustainability of agri-food trade. The EU's so-called sustainability chapters in its FTAs are toothless. There is nice aspiring language about ensuring environmental sustainability and human rights but no means to legally enforce it. We've also seen that global supply chains of agri-food commodities such as palm oil, soy, or beef are difficult to trace with regards to sustainability. There are labels out there in schemes, for instance, the soy moratorium in the Brazilian Amazon. However, there are numerous studies out there that show how companies and producers circumvent these agreements by laundering cattle or soy from areas that are prohibited to so-called approved land or processing plants and slaughterhouses. We really need strong regulations at the national and international level that regulate global supply chains to ensure positive public, environmental, and social outcomes. But we also need to make sure that the implementation of of these rules are um, are carried out properly and um, that there's sound implementation at all levels.
1: Shefali mentioned at the beginning uh, there is the issue of EU workers, but there's also workers on the other end of the trade deal that need some consideration because trade deals such as Mercosur and others offer a number of economic and social benefits too. Let's hear now what uh, Rupert uh, Schlegelmilch, the Director for the Americas agriculture and Food Safety at the DG Trade, the Director General of the European Commission uh, dealing with trade, uh, who spoke during a recent Euroactive event about the importance of trade and development.
8: Now, this is not just a Eurocentric affair of local supply chains. Uh, these integrated markets and the growth of food exports, of agriculture exports, by six, four, by six times in the last 30 years, has done a lot to alleviate poverty. And I think it's worth mentioning that, uh, that we're also, by buying these things, uh, we actually keep a development model which has been quite successful uh, for many countries. That doesn't mean that they don't have to diversify and that there are things which can be better.
0: Likewise, Mario Jales, who is the Economic Affairs Officer uh, for the Commodities Branch of the UN Conference on Trade and Development, added this.
9: But we're still leaving another very important issue, which is development outside. You know, uh, I'm speaking specifically about the agricultural negotiations at the WTO. The Doha Round, which initiated in 2001, 2003, should have dealt with so many of these complicated issues related to agriculture. Agriculture is a very... Def- the markets in agriculture is not as open as elsewhere. There are a lot more subsidies in agriculture and fisheries than elsewhere. So these sort of issues that are very important for developing countries have been not dealt with. And they must be dealt with, just like climate change that needs to be dealt with and the environment needs to be dealt with. So, I would commend Europe for also resurrecting the debate on development by uh, liberalizing trade in agriculture, because agriculture is very important for developing countries. So, it is essential to reformulate the uh, trade negotiation arena. Yes, it's important to uh, take climate change seriously and adapt international multilateral rules, but let's not forget about the development round, because it has kind of evaporated from the original commitments that many countries made, including the European Union.
1: So that's the development side, uh, the environmental side. But what we are missing here is the political element. We also spoke to uh, Nicolas-Frédéric Poitier, research fellow at the think tank Bruegel, to hear his take on the political ramification of Mercosur, Uh, what are the political implications of a trade deal, what this will mean in terms of, for instance, further cooperation, political closeness, uh, cultural homogeneity. And here's what he had to say about what is at stake politically with the ratification or non-ratification of the EU-Mercosur deal.
10: It is important to understand that from a purely economic standpoint, the Mercosur trade agreement is not expected to have a major impact on neither the Mercosur nor the European economy. However, from a political standpoint, it was a really important agreement. It was signed at a moment where the United States started its trade war with China, where it put tariffs on its allies, European Union, South Korea, and where it started to sabotage the WTO and, and, and violate international trade law in its trade wars. And at this moment, the signature was seen as a signal that both Europe and the Mercosur countries are still pursuing an agenda of of open and free trade and multinational cooperation. But since the signature of this agreement, it has gotten a lot of opposition in Europe, um, from mostly from environmental groups, but also from from agriculture groups. Um, Shortly after the signature of these agreements, there were major forest fires in, in in the amazon, and they really put a lot of public attention to the the big problem of deforestation in and for agricultural reasons in latin in mercosur countries and uh, put this high on the policy agenda um, This is kind of merged with other interests with agriculture interests, which have always been a really big important player in European politics and in European trade policy in particular. Um, for, for farmers in Europe, this, this, this agreement is problematic because Mercosur is a very competitive and, and very big exporter of agricultural goods. So they would see more competition from there if we, if this agreement were ratified. I think this points to a larger problem that we have with, with trade policy and with trade policy in Europe. Trade policy is more and more subsumed under other strategic and, 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 and other interests. We see this in the United States, where um, trade policy has become a tool almost of a geopolitical strategic rivalry with China. And this kind of rivalry is used for protectionist reasons, to justify protectionist policies. And we see this in Europe, where often, for instance, environmental goals, um, protections policies are justified by uh, environmental, environmental reasons. Um, Their example here would be the carbon border adjustment tax, the opposition to the Mexico trade agreement, and we see this in a similar way to the United States also when we talk about strategic autonomy, where uh, where there is is the notion that we should not be as open to trade as we've been um, because it is not in our due strategic interests meaning that um, we probably we should become more closed and and this of course has economic benefits for those that that uh, that otherwise face international competition i think this is this is a problematic development um because we kind of overload trade policy um uh, with these topics and that makes it almost impossible to ratify large agreements and controversial agreements and i think we should cherish more the benefits from international trade and from signing such trade agreements which is not just commercial interests, but it's also kind of a alignment and integration of of different economies around the world creating the space for multinational multilateral cooperation that are is so urgently needed especially if we want to solve a global crisis like climate change
0: And finally, we now close this podcast with some remarks from Maximo Torero, who is chief economist of the Food and Agricultural Organization, uh, the branch of the UN that deals with food, um, who offered his thoughts about the trade-offs of trade, but also why he thinks the pros outweigh the cons.
5: For every policy we do, there are trade-offs, and that's what we need to be able to manage better. So if we are going to achieve access to healthy diets for all, in a sustainable food systems, then that could have trade-offs and we need to measure those so that we can minimize those. If those trade-offs could affect other countries, then we also need to understand how we can cooperate with other countries to minimize those. So for me, in a strategy that tries to diversify and tries to open the availability of resources and trade plays a central role here and food safety is essential too. So it's not only having access to healthy diets, it's also having access to food safe, uh, safe food around the world. And that requires also to help to reduce the non-tariff barriers which will support the increase of flow of goods in the world, because trade at the end of the line is supposed to allocate resources in the best possible way. Of course, there are winners and losers, but that's what we need to do because our resources are very scarce.
0: So that's all from us this week. And this week, the Agri-Food podcast was produced by Euracif's Agri-Food news team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote, with the technical support of Evi Kiori. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so that you don't miss the latest news from the EU.
1: This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, and Spotify. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
7: This podcast was supported by Apex Brazil. The content of this podcast represents the views of the author only, and it is their sole responsibility. Apex Brazil does not accept any responsibility for any use that may be made of the information that this podcast contains.